0: All right, let me get myself situated. I like these big glasses.
1: All right, can everyone hear me? Is my mic working? Yeah, I can hear it. (laughs) All right, let me get my notes situated. Vijay, thank you. Pleasure, yes. for that talk. How are you doing? Are you hanging
0: in there? I'm just happy to share the art that I like very much, so (laughs) it's...
1: (laughs) Yeah, let's give a round of applause for Vijay's uh, <laughs> visual skills. I, anyone who knows me and has seen me present knows that I have horrible PowerPoints, and so I just never do it. So the revolution needs PowerPoints with visual <laughs> narrative. <laughs>
0: well, we need art. That's what we, we really need, art. need. You're right. I mean, you're right. Uh, a lot of art. The TriContinental produces a lot of art. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, uh, kind of the first half of my questions, I'm interested in talking about the recuperation of language, uh, that terms like development, for example, you talk about sustainable development in your talk, and healing that have been stolen, I would say, from the grammar of liberation that may have defined a certain generation of those types of struggles uh, prior to the neoliberal period. And so in your talk is you're pivoting from describing the current conditions of life and death under capitalism um, to your closing remarks about alternatives. And so the second half of this I'd actually like to talk about alternatives and uh, have a conversation about the five questions, the challenges that you pose at the end of your talk. Um, so in this, in this section of the talk where VJ p- pivots, um, you mentioned sustainable development, right? So you cite the 1987 UN World Commission on Environment and Development definition of this term, which states that sustainable development is, quote, development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs, end quote. In the following sentence, you argue that the term sustainable development now has a tincture of meaninglessness. I would agree, (laughs) because I do a lot of work on development. So in my own work on the history of development in the Navajo Nation, I think a lot about the genealogy of words, especially words like development, that seem to roll off our tongues and that are presumed to have some sort of universal meaning or currency, as if development means the same thing for all of us, or as a term that has always just existed within our vocabulary and specifically for indigenous folks situated in North America about tribal self-determination or sovereignty. They're often used interchangeably, actually. And so in this sense, development seems to reach the level of common sense. It is unquestioned as both a universal aspiration and a code for any number of things, and therefore it's sort of a mystical thing. It's mystified, right, in a Marxist sense. Mystified meaning it's removed from its material conditions of social reproduction, and what this actually means in the flesh on the ground right? for humans and indeed all the life that are recruited into its machinations to make the thing that we understand as development possible. And so typically when I see words like development or even the term sustainable development, which has also sort of a common sense parlance within lefty progressive circles, at least in the United States. um, So when I see these words or these phrases used uh, in this way, I pause to question right? how the person who's uttering that word is using it. Um, Because they're usually using it as a shorthand for a political argument, even if they may not recognize what they're doing as politics.
0: It's it's a discussion. It's a discussion. Oh. Yeah, go ahead.
1: We have a lot of time. Take
0: your time. (laughs) Go ahead. Thanks, Vijay.
1: They are, after all, staking a claim in a field of political struggle um, where development does not, in fact, mean the same thing to everyone, um, and where it can't really be understood outside of the material context of its actual force as a series of social and economic practices that literally harness life and death to produce commodities and profits, which is what you, I think, very brilliantly outlined in your talk. And so later on in that section of your talk, you say, but when sustainable development was coined, it did mean something, right? That meaning, contrary to the logic of capitalism, needs to return to our debates. So I'm interested in you elaborating on this final point here. Uh, you seem to be keenly interested in recuperating language that's been mangled and defanged, essentially made politically meaningless into what I would maybe call a socialist lexicon that offers an alternative to capitalism. And so what does development mean within a socialist lexicon? And then I'm also interested in moving into talking about healing or social healing. Hmm. Um, and what, how do we recuperate these terms into a socialist lexicon? And then what is their different meaning as they're being mobilized through struggle?
0: Uh, super. I mean, um... How many of you participated in the climate strikes? <laughs> a, lot, a lot of people? Yeah. Um, you know, for a long time, I've been thinking about this, uh, the politics of the climate mm-hmm. and the politics of um, the carbon budget. You know, there's an entire lexicon, a debate, um, outside the United States about the problem of global warming or climate catastrophe, there's an entire debate uh, around the UN institutions where they are looking at the climate issue from a completely different point of view. Mm. So for instance, there's the concept of the carbon budget, which means that you know, for the past 100 and so, so many years, different parts of the world have utilized their share of the carbon budget in different percentages. And if you look at the carbon budget and the analysis over the last 100 years, of course the West, the industrialized West, has basically eclipsed the carbon budget Mm. and has taken up all of it. And yet now, at both Copenhagen and Paris, the West came to the debating table and said everybody has to contribute. You know, it's so interesting that there is this Washington Post, Wall Street Journal view that China is the biggest polluter on the planet. I mean, <laughs> it's so convenient mm. to say it's somebody else. Mm. When industrialized West has basically used up most of the carbon budget, has created some forms of you know, non deprivation for the population here. And you have you know, billions of people outside this part of the world Who've had their labor stolen for generations and have not contributed to the carbon budget. They are now being told you can't burn carbon. Mm. And you know, I should say that neither the Chinese nor the Indians are saying we want to destroy the planet. But what they're saying is, let's have a climate fund. You know, the advanced industrial countries. $32 trillion sitting in tax havens, put in a few trillion dollars into a carbon fund or a climate fund managed by the United Nations to help countries around the world mm-hmm. leapfrog carbon technology, you know, move to public transportation and not individual cars and so on. Mm-hmm. This is the debate happening outside the United States. This is the debate happening at Paris and Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. But this is not the debate reported into the United States. Mm-hmm. So here we have the language of climate strike, which only sees things in a kind of total calamity way, mm-hmm. and doesn't see you know, the little bits and pieces of the debate. You know, how, how do you stop this 2% calamity? You've got to have people leapfrog over a carbon civilization. Mm-hmm. What's a carbon civilization? It's having you know, 100, 200, 500 people on the road, single person in a car. I mean, it's insane. The refrigerator is an insane thing. I mean, l- let me just tell you the refrigerator's insanity. I'm, I'm coming back to development, but the refrigerator. Take your
1: time, you don't... No, it's, it's an <laughs> <Yes>. insane
0: thing. <laughs> yes. You have people who live in places where for six months of the year it's below freezing. So, you know, obviously they heat their houses. Mm. I mean, that's, you've got to heat your house. You'll die of exposure. So you heat your house. Inside your house, you have a box, (laughs) which you now freeze. Well, actually, you don't. You keep a part of the box cold. But on top of this box that's cold, you have a box that freezes. Now, that's interesting. And inside the box that freezes, you have a filament. That heats up so that the box that freezes doesn't freeze too much. <laughs> if you came from Mars and you saw advanced industrial civilization, you'd think these people are crazy. I mean, what are you doing? Now, I'm not saying stop having a refrigerator because, you know, the reason you need a refrigerator is that the local stores disappeared. Big chain capitalist food production chains vanquished. The kind of eating where you can go to the market, buy something for that day, come back, cook it. You've got to have a huge freezer for all the frozen food because you're working two, three jobs, you're taking care of grandparents, your mm-hmm. children, this, that, you run ragged. Yeah. The system demands that you become insane. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when I use a word like sustainable development, it comes from a certain history. Yeah. It comes from a debate inside the United Nations mm-hmm saying that, you know, we have to deal with questions of hunger. Mm. You know, you can't save the planet if people are dying of hunger on it. What's the point of a climate strike when the people you're trying to save can't eat? They don't understand why you're so incensed about the, climate, uh, the planet being destroyed. Let it burn. Burn. Mm. What do they care if you don't address the questions of deprivation, hmm. the question of, well, you know, I'm worried about the planet, you've got to worry about both of them. Yeah. And sustainable development, we've got to come back to that argument. Hmm. I don't care that it's been absorbed and made toothless and yep. pathetic by NGO culture and <laughs> God knows what else. Yeah. These words are important to us. Hmm. The word healing is important to me. You know, generations of people have been traumatized by imperialism, colonialism, racism, you know, sexism, homophobia. Generations of people have had their dignity stripped away in their bodies. You can see it class is written on bodies. People have shoulders that come in because generations of their family have been humiliated. And now you tell me, no, we can't touch the discourse of psychosocial, you know, well being. We can't talk about dignity. Dignity is my word. Healing is my word. <laughs> I don't care if you want to use it for some new age fantasy. I don't care. That's your problem. You can have some new age fantasy around this vocabulary. It means nothing to me. Your definition is not my definition. <laughs> and I'm going to argue my definition so loudly <laughs> that you're going to say, well, maybe I'm wrong with this sort of you know, new age kind of healing. Maybe we need socialist healing. Maybe we need to think about healing in a socialist way. Maybe it's not just me, but it's us. (laughs) And maybe it's not just us, meaning my community. It's us, the planet. Maybe it's those poor fellas in Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares about them. West Papua is right now under total lockdown by the Indonesian government. Nobody cares New York Times worried about Trump in last winter's tweet, God knows. What about Papua? Mm. Second largest sink on the planet, carbon sink.
1: Do you think that caretaking economies are related to kind of a socialist form of healing? Because you talk about that as a possible alternative, right? When you're talking about alternatives at the end of the talk. Um, We talk a lot about caretaking, or a transition to caretaking economies as an alternative to a capitalist political economy. Do you see them as related?
0: Well, you know, the reason I emphasize the care issue Mm -hmm. is that um, it is actually quite interesting that from the United States, the pinnacle of uh, the world, the best country in the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, from the United States to the most miserable countries, the most radical people are from the care economy. In India, there have been these strikes of 180 million people. Mm on the world's largest recorded strike last year. 180 million people on strike. Did you hear about it? Really? I thought you have the newspaper of record. (laughs) Very fine New York Times. Stunning. 180 million people, human beings, by the way, uh, went on strike in India last September. And they were led by a trade union federation whose leader, she comes out of the Women who take care of children, sector of unionization. Now, this sector has been very radicalized because they have been feeling the cuts deeply and they know that despite the cuts, you see, if you think about other sectors of the economy, if I work as a minor and I get laid off, well, I get laid off. You know, it's a terrible thing, I have to do other things. You cannot get laid off from the care sector. There's no way. I mean, you can actually be fired, but you're still going to do your work. Mm. You're still going to take care of those children. You're still going to take care of older people. You know, look how families deal with it in the United States. It's It's amazing. There are children who are taking care at the same time, their children and their parents. You know, driving in their SUVs, shuttling grandparents and children to appointments and... And they have jobs, and I don't know how they manage it. They are holding society together. Mm. And that's where I see a kind of radical hope. Mm. You know, It's not in other sectors, it's in these care economies. Now, mm. I don't think it's an alternative for the system we have now, okay. because I think they're just holding it together. Mm. But in holding it together, they have a very sharp and precise understanding of the fact that something is wrong. Mm.
1: Yeah, round of applause. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So we actually have less time than I thought we did. We only have about 10 more minutes. Oh, How did that happen? <laughs> Here I thought we had like 20 or 30 minutes to have this conversation. So I wanted to uh, maybe spend our last 10 minutes talking about um, questions three and four, challenge three and four at the end of your talk. Um, the challenge of outsider, how do we build um, a politics of love rather than a politics of hate, and the question, can the left movement develop a politics of love that attracts masses of people? Um, In The Red Nation, we talk a lot about this. We employ an indigenous concept of kinship or relationality um, as a way that we try to practice this. I'm interested in hearing about um, the work that you're doing with the Tri-Continental or your own participation in socialist struggle. And what you what you think in fleshing out this question, can the left develop a politics of love that attracts masses of people? So it doesn't necessarily come out of the care economy. That's a site, I think, for mobilization and politicization, right? But this seems to be a sort of a different question.
0: You know, um, one of the things I've learned from my own political life and training and which we're trying to really develop in the tricontinental is that it's not always important to be right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I mean... Uh, Sometimes to be right is to be insufferable. Uh, The point of uh, human politics is to build collectivity. And Hmm. it's not that you're the only one in the room that knows everything. You know, have we all not been in those rooms where there's that person who knows everything? And every time you try to contribute, they say, no, you're wrong. Now, it doesn't matter what your political orientation is. Basically, you're an antisocial person. Um, The point of politics is to build society, Mm. not to be correct. It's to build collectivity. It's for all of us to be in the journey of understanding and truth. I was at an event in Miami uh, with a very fine novelist, uh, and I just said the line that I have in that text. I said that it's very difficult to build a politics of love. It's much easier to build a politics of hate. And people just started yelling and saying, you're wrong. You're wrong. And I thought, well. (laughs) Case in point. (laughs) You're wrong. You lie. At that statement. Yeah, because, I mean, look, I understand. Nobody wants to believe that hate is more powerful than love. We all want to believe that love is more powerful than hate. But in a world where a sort of testosterone masculinity has dominated public spaces, uh, hate has an advantage. <laughs> it just has an advantage. I mean, it, you know, I don't know if you follow British politics. And honestly, I don't know why you would. But I'm not sure if it's even politics. Um, I mean, Boris Johnson. Uh, he's like a character from Monty Python. Uh, it's extraordinarily difficult. it's It's, difficult. So tru- no, it's, so it's true, extraordinarily difficult to take him seriously, and it's you know, so I'm true. sorry, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful. He's a human being, and I recognise him as a human being, and so on. But good God, I mean, he's like a hologram for a sort of upper class caricature. <laughs> Boris Johnson, you know, has been walking around saying somebody's a sissy, and somebody's in skirts. You know, this is how he talks. He disparages people. You see, um, how do you disparage a woman in the public sphere? You call her a slut. Mm. How do you disparage a man in the public sphere? You call him a woman. I mean, this is the testosterone-laden, hateful public discourse we have. Mm. And unless we as a collectivity just refuse this, you know, say in our own spaces, sorry, please, it's not about you being right. It's about us forming a collectivity. It's for us learning together have a better attitude towards us. That's the politics of love. Mm. You know, the point isn't to chastise people all the time. The point is to give people confidence. You can't change the world unless people are confident. You know, I don't want a Messiah. I want the people to lead me. I want the people to be confident, to be filled with love and affection. You know, that doesn't, I'm not a naive idiot. I know that there'll be, Traumatized people with horrible personalities, and everybody should see a psychiatrist, etc. You know, I get all that. But the politics we want is not the politics of you know, yelling at people, putting them down, mm. using masculinist gestures. We want something different, you know. And in that sense, we are at a grave disadvantage. Mm. The politics of love are hard; mm. uh, they are difficult. To love is difficult in our time. Uh, to give yourself to people. One person, other people, many people, it's very difficult. Vulnerabilities are great. The fear of being hurt is very high. Mm. Uh, The experience of trauma is all around us. Mm. And I think unless the left enters a conversation about social trauma and so on, we just won't get anywhere. Mm. You know, I, I understand, I've covered war for years. I've been to some of the worst war zones. I've seen what war does to people what i see in the eyes of people in a war zone i also see in places like this you know it's not so different there is a great social trauma that we face the left it's not enough to talk about economics you know how to have a new plan a policy and i just love when bernie sanders said we don't need billionaires You just don't need them you know <laughs> Bernie is just, a, hey, we don't need billionaires. Well, that's great, Bernie. How are you going to get rid of them? What's the plan, Bernie? I'm with you. I'm with you. We don't need billionaires. We need to talk about that stuff, of course, but you know, we need to talk about why people are not confident. You know, why is it that when you go to a Trump rally, hate makes people confident? confident yeah. Why is it that when you go to these other rallies, people just don't have the same light in their eyes? It's not only hate that should put fire in the soul. Mm. It should be love as well.
1: Mm. So I think we only have time for one more question um, and just some closing comments. But your description of neo-fascism... not necessarily nihilism, but it kind of it feels like the absence of optimism. Mm. It's um, a profound kind of extreme form of accepting our conditions as they currently are, and then you sort of punch down or you punch left mm. or you punch laterally. And this happens a lot of movements in the United States as well. And so that being the absence of optimism, closing thoughts on the role of optimism in building the confidence of the people, built, having the light in their eye, what is our role as socialists, our role as socialist intellectuals and organizers in, in inspiring confidence and optimism?
0: I mean, you know, at a time like this, it just looks like the lights have gone off. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's like I'm sitting in a room. Uh, there's no electricity. Uh, the walls are coming in at me. And, you know, I just can't be paranoid enough. Um, yesterday I heard uh, Donald Trump's speech at the UN. And it scared me. It really scared me. Um, I feel very scared that the United States is going to bomb Iran, uh, which is going to open, you know, Armageddon uh, for many parts of the world. I feel very scared about that. I feel very upset by what the United States government is doing to Cuba and to Venezuela, uh, to the people of these countries starving. I was in Venezuela this year. Uh, people are in very difficult situation. Cuba is. Facing a serious challenge. It's, it's very hurtful uh, that this government is deliberately hurting the life chances of people. Uh, you feel this sense of being enclosed. But then, you know, one of the great things about my job is I get to travel to, I was in Argentina, uh, you know, about two weeks ago mm-hmm. in the Pampas, and I met uh, farmers, uh, uh, campesinos, these agricultural workers, many of them of Bolivian descent. Um, with such incredible love for their community their families and for themselves you know the capacity to believe that they will they have to make a better world mm-hmm. you know you spend time with people like that and you think you know god if, if somebody, somebody uh, agricultural worker who spends so much of his or her time traveling across the pampas you know working in other people's farms when they come back home, they hug their children so tightly. Mm-hmm. You know, you see that. You see how beautiful the pampas is. You know how beautiful the earth is. You feel you've got to be optimistic. You can't allow. You know these arid people like Donald Trump, Jair Bolsonaro, Eduardo Duterte, Narendra Modi. These people are arid. They don't have poetry. Mm-hmm. They don't even have prose. You know, oh. they sort of just speak in guttural. You know, they just spit words yeah. out at you. They don't love, it seems to me. There's something wrong. You want to embrace them like these agricultural workers embrace their children. You want to take them to the window and say, look outside, the world is such a beautiful place. Mm. What's wrong with you? This is what gives me optimism.
1: Yeah, <laughs> indeed.
0: <laughs> Round of applause to that. <laughs>
1: Well, you've taken us on quite a journey of despair and hope this evening. Um, I think that's what all of us face when we engage in this kind of organizing work. So I just want to thank you so much. And I want us all to give BJ another round of applause. Please. Of applause. Thanks
0: a lot. Thank you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> yes. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Really. Yeah,
1: and thank you for coming, <laughs> everyone. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. You're awesome. Okay. <laughs>